Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. Today's guest is Will Copestake and it was another one of those brilliant, inspiring sessions where we just have a sit-down chat about their outdoor career so far. Do you remember episode 76 where we discussed what a Munro is with Atlas Mountaineering? Well, Will has cycled between all 282 of them, climbed all of them, and solo circumnavigated the Scottish coastline by sea kayak in a one 364-day expedition. He's completed the coldest Corbett challenge and regularly completes expeditions in Patagonia too. Will's first adventure, though, starts at 12 years old after a fantastic outdoor upbringing in northwest Scotland during the peak of Raymere's influence. Will was cast away by his parents with a few friends overnight on an island, and from there, Will has gone on to complete expeditions in Patagonia, Scotland, Iceland, across Europe, and New Zealand. So, very well experienced. And he also owns his own kayaking company up in the northwest of Scotland, so I will link that down below too, and all the details that you can go and see his materials. But before we get into the episode, I wanted to mention the sponsor for this podcast, which is Sidetrack Magazine again. Sidetrack is dedicated to adventurous storytelling at its very best, and they use stunning imagery and personal stories from expeditions and journeys from around the globe, and you really can tell. I said that last episode, and this episode, I've got their most recent edition next to me. It's brilliant quality. It's got some fantastic stories inside, and even previous guest John Gupta is featured in there too. So I really recommend you go and check out their website, browse and purchase from the back catalogue, subscribe to the feature editions and the most recent edition, and also subscribe to their free Field Journal newsletter, which is providing you with the best adventure updates weekly. And if you've come from the Field Journal newsletter, then get in touch with me, btmtravelpod at gmail.com or message me on Instagram. Let me know what corner of the globe you're coming from and what adventure passions and hobbies you've got. But with no further delay, let's get into the interview. So hello, Will. Welcome to the podcast after we finally saw Internet Connections, hopefully. How are you doing? Yeah, no, nice to be on here, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, and like I was saying, it, it, the pleasure's mine. Honestly, you, you've done some incredible things and it's quite, it's always a pleasure when I get to speak to people like you. So, uh, so yeah, thank you, for, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. It's always good to come and share some adventures. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, jumping straight into it, really, starting at the beginning, how was your first, or rather, how has your first mini adventure being cast away at 12 years old impacted who you are today? Um, I, it's impacted me quite a lot. For me, it was the, so my, my dad kind of set me off over, over the lock, which is directly in front of our house. Can't be more than a kilometre away from the house, but he left us there with a couple of friends, uh, a cooler full of food for emergencies. Um, <laughs> and the idea was that we were going to do the, the Raymeers thing, um, find some dead wood, build a shelter, uh, scavenge food off the shoreline, um, live the kind of whole Raymeers lifestyle and come back triumphant as explorers. Uh, and it was a complete fail. We built our hut on an ant nest, so we, we put up the tent because it was full of ants. 
Uh, I think we, we got like a few winkles and some limpets off the shore, which was definitely not very tasty and not enough to survive. So we cracked open the cooler and had some bacon. And then we, <laughs> with our triumphancy so far, we went swimming up a river uh, wearing our clothes and our spare clothes because we were already cold. Cold, wet, hungry, tired. Um, and I think for me, the, what impacted me most on that was the, the gift parents gave me to, to trust the ability of us to assess our own risk. I've always kind of taken that on to sort of bigger adventures and, and kind of being very honest with yourself at where your risk and comfort lies and they're knowing where the line needs to be drawn. Um, now, for us on that trip, we probably crossed the line a little bit. We were a bit uncomfortable through the night. But then yeah. experience comes just after you needed it. You make those mistakes and learn um, for the next time. I think that really set me up quite nicely. And it wasn't just that adventure, too. There was many around that uh, through childhood. But giving us that ability to go and make our own mistakes. Um, now, of course, my parents were completely absent. I'm sure they were there with binoculars watching pretty much everything we did with a, a smile and a beer in hand. Um, <laughs> but for, for us, we felt that we were totally on our own. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, was it scary at any point? Um, I think we felt quite comfortable there because you could see home. It wasn't that far away. Yeah. Um, and so you felt like you were in the middle of nowhere, but you could always look up and sort of semi-see familiarity. Yeah. Um, and so it was a nice jump away from comfort, but not too far that you, you go into misadventure. Um, so we, we felt fairly comfortable. And I love that quote as well, saying experience comes just after you needed it. <laughs> yeah, it's so true though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Thinking about childhood too, uh, again, uh, how did your father's stories of base life in tiny hut stations in Antarctic South Georgia, aspirations for future life? Well, I, I mean, growing up, there was all dad's stories of him being down in, in Antarctica. Uh, also, my mum, who did sort of science and uh, an expedition trip in Svalbard at the same yeah, time. Uh, so it's amazing yeah. I exist. It was all, he would always kind of refer to things in, in kind of um, like hut life. So can you get on with people? He, he tried to instill all sorts of being tidy and clean on me, which I agree has long gone over my head. Um, but generally <laughs> that kind of picking, picking the ability to be diplomatic and, and nice and sort of having camaraderie between each other and not causing arguments, I think affected me quite a lot I, I look at people kind of like would I share a tent with them and how could I kind of make it so I could so to speak that's not a bad way of viewing life that's not a bad way of approaching people <laughs> yeah yeah and sort of if there's someone that you say yeah I really wouldn't want to share a tent you could maybe sort of ask yourself kind of like how can I change a little bit so I would um or what would I want to happen between that um, yeah. but I think what I, what I took most of those is the kind of little things around base life and the kind of small things that make a grander adventure. With all this foundation of of all those mini adventures, the castaway, mum and Svalbard, dad in uh, South Georgia, what is it that keeps your your quite clear burning passion for the outdoors alive? That certainly laid the foundations for it. My first real interest as a child, I, I was one of those really nerdy kids who mm. really liked to sort of delve quite deeply into, I was really into my um, sort of studying moths and birds, so entomology, ornithology, oh, no. looking up, looking under rocks on the shore, getting in with your, your insects and all that sort of really micro stuff. The, the community I'm in, uh, Ullapool, which is quite a small community, is quite 
wonderfully eccentric. There's field clubs, there's geology clubs, and older but very enthusiastic people will impart their knowledge to all ages. And most kids in the village here actually are very comfortable with talking to adults, and adults talk to kids as adults. And so we between my parents sort of laying that foundation and all those people I grew up with, it gives a really good knowledge and interest in a small area that then expands into a bigger area. As I grew older, the horizon got further away. I mean, I heard you say on a podcast as well how the community, if the, if the Northern Lights ever show up, you, te- you tend to have one person get on the phones and then it's just, it's just like bounces around the, the, the town and the village. <laughs> Yeah, actually, you know, literally two nights ago, we had that kind of faint aurora appeared and the, the phone tree sort of went off. So before we get into some bigger expeditions in a couple of other episodes, I really wanted to find out more about one of your first trips, Iceland, nearly a decade ago now. But what other highlights that resonate with you still? Um, it's amazing to think that's a decade ago. Blimey. Nearly, old. yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I mean, that was my first like, proper big adventure, which I did with my, my, both my roommate and my kind of best friend through university, Remy McMurtry. Um, uh, and we, we went in with not very much experience, but enough to get us by. Uh, our degree was environmental science and outdoor education. So we were aspirant mountain leaders at that point, summer mountain <laughs> leaders. But what we did have was a bag loads of youthful enthusiasm. Uh, and at the time we, we were experienced as we'd ever been so we thought we'd be good enough to do it i think i think what resonates with me most the, the sort of the banter and the camaraderie that we had in crossing it um sharing both the highs and the lows and there were kind of high highs and low lows through that trip we were there for three months so you kind of get every range of the spectrum i remember the ash in everything in the food in your eyes in really? your toilet paper everywhere so we, we started at the coast we actually we, we failed the first time we we arrived there uh, it was probably the biggest lesson we took out of that was not to get too task focused um we, mm. we planned everything to an absolute team because we were supposed to be revising at university we um came in we were going to do the first month we we're going to cross the country the second month we were going to walk around the northwest fjords and then the third month we were going to hitchhike um, and we arrived there it was the coldest summer in I think 69 years and and so as a result the snow melt had just been a bit delayed and we were passing the odd soul turning back saying the rivers are too deep and we sort of thought yeah we're better then we'll get further um, and then we started passing trucks that were coming in yeah, the rivers are too deep and you sort of go okay um, uh, but we carried on and then sure enough the rivers were sort of 100 meter wide class five rapids and you go yeah no um and so our first our first kind of big thing that we'd really set up for we walked out and we felt really quite dejected but swapped our plan to go and then try the west fjords um we went in there we had 40 kilo plus bags when we tried to do that got in i think three or four days and slipped a disc in our backs uh, or Remy oh. slipped a disc and I got horrendous food poisoning from eating mussels off the beach a horrendous sort of misadventure we sort of came out of that and thought right we failed that one as well um, and we, we started hitchhiking and climbing mountains just waiting for this summer to get warmer it, it did get warmer and in that month we really acclimatized to the country and sort of learned the little semantics on how to camp in ash and what to do with wind and really settled ourselves uh, ready for the the trip that we'd planned to do straight from the get-go uh, and eventually when we did come back 
it was much easier uh, we did it successfully but that was probably the biggest thing I took out of that was kind of how we we both learned lessons between each other and, and you could sort of see each other developing quite quickly I mean, um, I mean and talking about highs as well on your Instagram I saw a photo you shared from from that trip um I, I think it's um I'm gonna try I'm so sorry Snaefell Summit yeah, Snaefell's Yockel, um, or Snaefell's the actual summit, Snaefell's Yockel's the, the glacier on the top of it. We managed, we went up there hitchhiking and so we thought we'd try and climb it and spent the whole day in the mist and only on the top two pinnacles emerged out of the top of the clouds. And it was just this sort of silvery blanket below us, really dark cloud above us. And uh, poor Remy, I actually, I made him stand on that lower pinnacle for what must have been half an hour in the snow while I hovered about on the top pinnacle waiting for the cloud to clear to get the photo that I got um, by which time Remy was absolutely freezing um, but it was worth it though um, it's, it was worth it it was amazing um, it's slightly it's not a false photo but it gives an impression of being serious mountaineering that image we weren't actually even wearing crampons it, I mean we, it was relatively easy climbing navigationally fairly tricky um, with uh, the, the glacier which potentially had crevasses in it so we, we did rope up but actually a really fairly easy one to climb yeah the photo looks looks quite epic that's for sure <laughs> when i write up the article i'll see if i can embed the um the the picture from instagram for anyone who reads it it's it's really it's an awesome shot it's well worth the half hour wait i think so um you talk about the things going wrong and it's makes makes for quite a nice segue actually so you've emphasized before the importance of having a plan b so other than those moments like where has this really come in handy for you um that's a very good question i think i really liked um going through our outdoor education course we had a there's a tutor called john cluett um who we, we always we always knew as pastor john and he, he had this lovely expression, he had this lovely expression that there's no such thing as a plan B, only a second plan A. In the the idea that you, you never pick a plan B because it's worse. It just sounds worse in your head. <laughs> and that a second plan A always sounds a little bit better. And I use that, I mean, nowadays, especially with guests, you're, you're going out in conditions and you you very quickly realise that either they're not up for the conditions or the conditions are cha- changing. And it's that dynamic risk assessment. And that's where in your head you've already got plan a second plan a third plan a fourth plan a and you're picking whichever one whichever one goes whichever one suits um, the day yeah yeah in personal expedition i mean in sea kayaking a lot of the time the second plan for me it kind of original route uh, so drag it over the headland between it if you really can't go mm. um or the, the much more soft one is just sit in a tent and wait it out and read a book um, which is quite nice uh, <laughs> and we use that all the time in trips you did that a couple of times when you were circum circumnavigating Scotland, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. So that trip, which was four months, um, probably about a month of that was spent sitting in a tent, reading reading books and generally staring at the, the roof of the tent. Then uh, my kayaking experience didn't really match the task I was up to. I'd done my homework and I I I was solid in a kayak, yeah. but I was kind of mixing white white water skills with sea kayak knowledge. And to make that safe, you add time and you be conservative. And, yeah. and as a result, spend a lot of time in a tent until you feel comfortable with the conditions. Interesting that you say something like that, too, because I'm currently going through the website and I'm adding an article to every single post I've put on there just to try and make it look good. I've just gone over a previous yeah. interview with uh, Miss Rover and she said how he tries to keep her goals uncomfortable so that you're always getting yeah. growth. Yeah, and it's... Um... 
the I mean, you have that nice sort of you have that the comfort zone, which is that kind of type one fun going to the cinema, uh, yeah. having a beer. You've got yeah. that type two fun, which is uncomfortable, but still you, you're not really developing massively. And I, I find it between type two and type three where it's a little bit epic but you're not panicking but that's that that's where the kind of growth zone is um and once in a while you get those conditions wrong which is normally if, if the weather turns bad on you and you have to survive your way out of it um that experience if you survive it grows um and it, it doesn't drop down again so the next time you you have a little more knowledge and a little more experience in it uh, and you have those tools to cope with it just a little bit better um, and the more the more that happens, the the better it gets. Um, but yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. That, that that growth is being slightly uncomfortable and making this face. Yeah. Um. yeah. Just <laughs> gritting your teeth and seeing um. what you can do. <laughs> absolutely. I wanted to touch on mindset as well. So there is a word that I fail to see used enough in in my research on you for for this interview. And anyone who's tried doing like two or three hikes back to back, I think will agree with me here. But that word is endurance. I don't see people saying that enough in, in uh, the stuff about you. I mean, uh, there is so much information out there to help us get physically fit. But what tips and tricks do you have for us to keep your mindset in check when you're doing things like a 364 day expedition? So I think it's blind stubbornness is probably a small part of that. The, the the interesting thing with a trip when it gets to that sort of length when it's a really really big trip um, and I've only ever really had that on the Scotland trip where, which was a year you couldn't comprehend the scale of it and so you it's the only trip I wasn't looking at the finish line because it, if you thought about how much came ahead it would kind of blow your mind and you would just think that is absolutely impossible and so that trip it kind of broke down into a, into weeks or, or normally it'd be kind of I had packs of maps and it'd be how far would I get on that pack of maps I think the first time I ever had that was in New Zealand um, where I'd been persuaded uh, I was trying to hike the Great Walks uh, fairly young it would be sort of 17 18 years old and um, I planned on doing this trip around Stewart Island in South Island New Zealand um, which was a, a one of the Great Walks a three-day hike and these these two folk in the in the hostel I was staying at came in and said you should really do the the 10-day hike because you might see Kiwi which was way further beyond what I'd done before. I mean, the longest I'd done, I think, was four days up until that point. And so I packed up all the instant noodles I could fit in a bag and, and sort of went out for that. Um, a fairly kind trail, although exceptionally muddy and, and sort of epic in places. You, you are going backcountry hut to backcountry hut, so a soft mm. introduction. I got my rationing wrong a little bit, and so I was kind of very hungry all the time, very tired. I found that sort of going along that... I couldn't comprehend the distance I have to go get to the end of the hut. And so I would break it down. I, I would stop at that rock on the next corner and you would get to that rock and then you go, right, I'll stop on that rock on that corner. Uh, I never actually stop. You just kind of trick yourself, make mental mental hurdles. And I found that worked really well on that trip. And I've taken that onto other expeditions um, in a slightly bigger scale. So for kayaking, for example, it might be I, I need to make it around that headland. And then I'll think what comes next. Um, and the rest then comes stage by stage. Um, and I found that works really well. Um, when, it, when it gets onto a really longer trip as well, the, the idea of having that sort of pacing really mentally makes it easier. Yeah, so stubbornness and breaking down each step. Yeah, it's that, that kind of manage, manageable chunks um, that you can sort of break it into. Um, and there, there is 
nothing wrong with admitting you're human as well. Um, there was a lot of times, a lot of times going through those, the Monroe's particular, I struggled with enormously, um, a particularly hard winter. It was, it was challenging. Interestingly, at the time, I really beat myself up once a week to come down and book into a hostel and come out of the tent uh, to dry the sleeping bag out. Uh, and as much as anything, talk to another human being um, <laughs> that wasn't over a phone. Um, and at the, at the time, I kind of viewed that as cheating because I had it in my head. I would camp the whole time. Um, but actually admitting that and sort of coming down and having those respites for even just a night made everything achievable again. Um, I'm sure there's tougher people out there who would do it completely without that. But for me, I found that sort of admitting your human side really helped. Yeah, and that, that probably gave you enough energy to, to continue and crack on and complete the challenge. And if anything, made it fun again. Because at the end yeah. of the day, the, all, all these adventures, if you look into it, they are basically a holiday. Um, yeah. I mean, you can, you can make them as epic as you want, but they, they are there because you want to go and do something fun. Um, it's a vacation. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, a vacation where you are 60% of the time uncomfortable. In an interview with BMC, you said that you prefer the challenges of winter. And I massively agree. We were chatting about it a little bit beforehand today. I've got my own few memories. But are there any key highlights that come to you during in winter? Yeah, actually. Um, my, my best highlights that I've had are those days where you've spent the whole day in um, and not seen very much. And you get just a flash of absolute glory where it, it opens up. You get a view. You might get a bit of sunset. It, descends again and it's almost like it's reminding you that there is something out there worth doing it all for and i've tried to capture those in photos so from an expedition point of view what differences are there between somewhere like new zealand and the reaches of cold and arctic europe it's the same anywhere in the world um if it's windier you have to take care if it's snowier you have to take more care um but it's set of kind of raw skills that you tailor to that environment a little bit the diff I mean, main difference is uh, i found in new zealand for example you've got to be adhering to the national park rules a lot more you've got to be very conscious of the environment there because it is a very fragile environment um as i found in europe they've normally got something relatively constructed and set up that um obviously if you're in the real backcountry you're, you're paying attention to that environmental care as well mm. um but Norwegian fjords are very similar to the South Island, uh, New Zealand fjords. Um, and they're very similar to the Patagonian fjords. They're kind of wet, cold, temperate, tiger uh, environments. And they're, yeah, they're stunning. So um, looking at the initial lockdown, I, I like how you stayed disciplined against kayaking and hill walking. And you made the most of the situation by cycling instead. Does this adaptive and disciplined attitude come quite naturally to you? I would like to say normally, no, not really. I, I have to work quite hard to, to be disciplined, <laughs> uh, if I'm totally honest. Um, yeah, I, I actually, I, I found it very interesting. The whole country, when lockdown happened, uh, you'll, you'll know yourself you, when you finish a trip, you get post-expedition blues if your routine changes and you're not busy. Mm. Um, routine changes and, and you suddenly sit idle. You tend to get depressed. Um, I, I found initially, uh, uh, the only time I've really had that back was actually after the Iceland, um, where we got really bad post-expedition blues. Mm. Uh, ever since then, I've always kept myself busy. Um, I, I found when we got back from lockdown, everything 
anticlimactically for me. I was just finishing my season in Patagonia. I was due to be going 35 days to kayak around Cape Horn. And so men- mentally had geared myself up for this mega adventure. Um, and I found that particularly being told you weren't allowed to kayak, I found pretty difficult at first. But then slowly kind of the emotions come aside and you look at the logic and, and you go, yeah. Uh, and so I hopped on a mountain bike instead and went biking all over the place. Yeah. Um, fairly conservatively. I was again in the research to this. I read something that you said about um, traveling and and meeting people. So I thought I'd just ask you the the, the question more directly, a bit more openly, uh, which is how important do you is to travel? Um, I think it's very important. If you travel to a different culture or a different place or or even somewhere else, a different perspective on what you've perceived to be the norm. So I mean, for example, for me in Scotland, living on the west coast. There is an inherent bias on the West Coast versus the East Coast, um, which has always been the case. Um, but actually, upon travelling to the East Coast, found it was just as interesting and the people were just as lovely um, as on the West Coast. And it, it helps to sort of break and change those preconceived biases. And I, I think everyone should experience at least a couple of times in their life, um, be it far away or even relatively close to home. Um, but just sort of going out with the open mind to, to sort of see and experience that. And I mean, um, it's nice that you mentioned inside as well, because especially as we ride the the pandemic wave out of 2020 and seemingly straight into 2021, um, what lessons do you think can be learned from <laughs> your own country? Really fun this year, uh, running our kayaking company. We we've. We have a steady stream of guests. It's normally sort of, sem- sort of half European, half international, and the rest are, are folk doing the, the North Coast 500 car trip around the north. This, this year we've had an awful lot of what I would describe as staycation, who are, are folk who would never normally come up here. And it, it's interesting seeing people's eyes opening up to uh, what is of our own back door. So last one before we wrap up now, before we get to some wrap-up questions. So in your ever-growing career as an outdoor practitioner, what is one moment that you would love to relive? Ooh, that is a good question. I think it would have to be in Chile in my first my first season down there, which was a very different way of guiding to, to how they do now it's a lot more raw a lot um a lot less safe than, than it is nowadays um, it was, um it was it was very old school in the way they would do it you were as a guide expected to improvise and you were expecting kit to break and you were expecting to have to tow and really kind of as an expedition paddler think about how on earth you're going to get through some stuff they would send you out in all sorts of winds and, and all sorts of conditions that they they don't now they've got a much better safety record there was a we did with with a couple that it was three or four days into the back of the tree and, up, and then you you line the kayaks up a river and so you're towing them upstream and we were sharing a few beers in front of the icebergs and just sort of chatting and it was a really lovely evening where we, we just kind of connected almost as friends which was great and we have stayed in touch ever since and it's those are what you want as a guide is to have those sort of epic experiences where you you really connect with people on a slightly deeper level and you end up sharing a, a sort of lifetime memory on both halves it's not just a sort of nameless face coming through and you're sort of taking them out for the day impacts both of you um and i think if, if i could relive something it would be something along those lines 
that experience is what you want as a guide where you kind of connect in with someone um and it's it's not just like a sort of nameless face passing through it's where you kind of have that deeper connection between each other where you you as a guide take a, a memory to, to follow on with you um which you'll remember for the rest of your days as well as the client and you both have a, a sort of long-lasting friendship grow out of it um, I'm not saying to all my guests that you've got to be friends with me for the rest of your life, um, but it, it's nice <laughs> once in a while when you get that that connection, and it, it's it, it's not common. You get get maybe a few a year on those expedition trips like that, um, where all the stars align and everything sort of goes absolutely perfectly. Um, but those Just, are definitely the experiences you want to you want to hold on to. Um, and I'm sure anyone working in the outdoors will have the same experience and sort of random friendships along the way absolutely just that perfect setting perfect country and then just just connecting yeah and a, ni- a nice balance of hard work and good reward as well so it's not all easy it's not all difficult yeah um, so i've got three wrap-up questions then for you so sure. by this point it's probably wise to consider you an expert on scottish mountains so if you could recommend three places or mountains for someone's debut trip to scotland what would they be oh that is a good question um so i'm definitely not an expert on mountains but i do have a better knowledge of the most <laughs> um my my absolute favorite mountain in scotland is ancello um which is probably not a beginner mountain but it's certainly not the hardest in the country um it's a twin peak uh, you, it's got everything you want from a mountain you start at sea level um which is always a good proper mountain if you start at sea level you get up up on the top there's an amazing view from the first summit and you can take it as far as you want it to go the next summit is is a little bit steeper a little bit harder and then you have a pinnacle set of ridges which i think is a grade two scramble maybe sort of an upper grade one that is exciting and airy um and actually tim who you had on on your last podcast i believe just jumped off it um <laughs> yeah oh yeah um, so it's base jumpable but yeah just a really cracking mountain the next one that I would say is in my again fairly close to home. Um, I'm a little biased on the northwest. Um, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pick one of the Inverpolly and Ascent Hills, but I'm not going to pick Stackpolly, which is the famous one that everyone goes and does. Um, my personal favourite one is the uh, and Fiddler, which is a couple of mountains further south. Uh, is an easy walk in. And just has the most tremendous view over all of Inverpolly. Um, absolutely fantastic mountain. Uh, and you can lengthen that by going around Benmore Koyak onto a, a sort of ridge wall, narrow and really quite epic. Um, and I, I like those Inverpolly mountains. They're not Monroe's, they're not Orbits. I, I call them pocket mountains. They're, they're quite small. Yeah. But they have all the epicness of a bigger mountain. And so you get a lot of rewards for fairly minimal effort. And then my last one, I'm going to go on a little bit of a, a sort of detour game changer and take us all the way down to Ardgower. Garden is, is the most easily accessible there. And again, not Monroe's. There's no Monroe's in the Ardgower Peninsula. Ardgower is the, the peninsula across the, across the water from Fort William. Um, and all the mountains over, but you don't have anyone there. You, you basically have the whole place to yourself. And it's really wild and untouched for you, which I quite like. That's perfect. That sounds so good. And that's, I don't know, I, I don't know if I'm uh, secretly an introvert, uh, despite uh, what I do on this podcast or not, but I actually <laughs> much prefer it when there's just no one about and uh, you're just exploring on your own. Yeah, so I mean, I, I would definitely sort of, it's wild and empty. 
So we're not just talking Scotland now, but it, um, but by all means, uh, give an answer in Scotland if you'd like. But if you had guaranteed perfect conditions, where would you go and why? Uh, so this one uh, hasn't changed for me since I was about 10, I don't think. When my dad worked in, the, in um, South Georgia, as part of the Falcons, well, the, the Brits were fairly nervous that the Argentines were going to come and take over South Georgia. Um, and so they, they basically went to all the scientists uh, on the island uh, and said, pick something and we'll name it after you. Now, my dad, my dad picked a, a mountain, um, which is it's fairly small. It must be five or six hundred metres high. Um, his colleague picked a glacier, which is hilarious because it's now melted away and gone. But, uh, but uh, I'd love to if I had the perfect conditions and the perfect sort of trip, trip for a lifetime. I, I would go down there with my dad and climb, climb his peak, which is Copestake Peak in South Georgia. Perfect. Yeah, I, I think it's 612 metres or something like that, or 660 odd metres or something like that, if I remember correctly. Yeah. That's nuts. <laughs> but he's never climbed it, so he's never had the chance. It's great to go down there and sort of get up. Lastly then, where can we keep updated on all of your adventures? So you can, you can split it now between two. Um, I keep most of my adventures now on um or Instagram, um, or you can join me on an adventure and see me via kayaksummeriles.com uh, where we run trips in Scotland uh, and we can also arrange trips to Patagonia now as well through our, our friends at Kayak in Patagonia. Good, and I'll make sure that all those links are in the uh, the show notes in the description at the bottom so you can uh, scroll down to there, tap the link and go explore. So, But Will, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you. And I really do mean that. That was such a great podcast with Will. He is such a down-to-earth and modest guy, and yet he's achieved so much. It was fantastic to sit with him. We've got another podcast coming soon about his time in Patagonia, which I hope you enjoy as well, so stay tuned for that. If you do want to do some canoeing or kayaking with Will, I will leave his company in the show notes, but also I'll leave his website where he puts blogs and photos on and his Instagram link on there too. Talking about Instagram... Check out the social media links for the podcast on there too. I'm most active on Instagram, but we do have Facebook, a Facebook group, and Twitter as well. If you want to support the podcast, then you can do by going to Patreon and signing up to give small monthly donations and get some merchandise in return, or just check out our merch. Subscribe, follow, please share it with a friend so that we can carry on expanding. And I hope you have a brilliant day, and I'll see you in the next episode.